But it's nice to feel that anxiety. It's okay to be at peace with uncertainty. Don't penalize yourself for saying and tell people that you feel uncertain. It's not a popular emotion to share out loud, but it's okay. What I challenge you to do is to feel that uncertainty and then take action to solidify the certainty, right? Do that bounded exploration pathing. Do that sequence of work. Do that butterfly testing. Do the experiments. Because when you do those things, then you're acknowledging your feeling uncertainty and you're also solving for it, right? Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, Serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? you know how painful it is. Acevil helps your in-house team by taking tough tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia-Pacific, which includes onboarding, procurement, device management, real-time IT support, offboarding, and more. Gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place with our state-of-the-art platform. Check out Acevil, E-S-E, vel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code BRAVE for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. So I think lots of questions uh, from folks who are seniors and looking for new jobs about life and jobs. So I figured let's do a Q&A about that. I think the last case we had is we had Singaporean graduate in computer science who was based in the U.S. and weighing a decision between the U.S. and the current job market there versus Singapore's job market. That's one story. But also there are many other stories, right? I think there's folks who are running a small business and deciding whether to keep growing after that, after graduation. There are folks who want to do consulting. I think lots of different stories. So what do you want to ask, Adriel? Yeah, I think there are multiple ways to approach this. I think the first... Common question is, what should I actually do? Right? Should I be a corporate slave, go into consulting, join a large MNC? Or should I do something more entrepreneurial, whether it's my own small business, a startup, or a nonprofit? And I think you do have like, you went through that decision path, right? Because you were thinking between conjunct consulting, you were thinking between Bay and starting your own company. So how do you approach that like first question about what exactly to do after graduation? Yeah, it's not an easy position to have. I'll start with the personal story before we talk about frameworks and the key takeaways. For me in junior college, you know, I wanted to be a vaccine researcher and my side job, I wanted to be a poet. And I literally told folks and family about that. And I think I went through some experiences, you know, I think we shared about this before. I went through the loss of my first girlfriend, but also I had some exposure to the medical field. And I basically said that wasn't really one the path I wanted to be at. So I went to university with a thesis that I wanted to eventually work at Gates Foundation on vaccine strategy or Bridge Man Group on social impact consulting because I had joined this consulting club that was doing social impact in university called the Berkeley Group. And it's a tremendous alumni community now. And I think it was so warm and so helpful 
that I was able to kind of like say like, hey, this is the path I want to do. I didn't get those jobs because I didn't have enough experience. And also from their perspective, I was an international. They wanted US citizens. So I went for my third choice, which was applying for jobs at Bain. And I had opportunities to either apply and get selected for either in the US or in Southeast Asia. I was very happy to actually apply for Bain because, you know, even though it was my third choice, I felt like I was going to learn a lot. And I knew that it was a really rock star group of folks that I could learn from, get training. So for me, I think it was a little bit clearer to me that going to Bain was a bit of a no-brainer. I think in the back of my head, there was also opportunities to work in tech in SF, like Google and Facebook. But at that time, I think it was a little bit less obvious because this was back in 2010, 2011, right after the global financial crisis. So it was just starting to open up opportunities for, from their perspective, you know, economics majors. So before that, I had primarily been engineering jobs. So, you know, in that context, imagine I'm doing internships in 2010, 2011, the global financial crisis has just happened. A lot of my seniors had graduated into the worst job market in the US ever. So I eventually kind of made a decision to said like, hey, I'm happy to go back to Southeast Asia and work. There's a great group of people that are going to be great mentors and training there. And I remember there was that conversation I had actually where, you know, the Bain team was like, hey, you know, you can either work in the Bain US office in the West Coast or you can work on the Bain Southeast Asia office. But in Southeast Asia, it's all about growth because we're still growing as economy. So you're going to be learning about growth cases, et cetera. But if you work at Bain in the West Coast, you're going to be working on projects that are focused on like cost cutting, headcount reduction. It's just a different type of learning that you're going to get. That stuck with me since then, which is, is true, right? Because... Even though technically it's the same company with a great equally rock staff group of folks, I think the geography and the type of projects you get to work on actually train you about your future opportunities, right? And so when I worked at Bain Southeast Asia and China, I actually ended up learning a lot about tech, about consumer. I learned about growth. I learned about strategy. I learned about multi-country strategy and market expansion. So these are all skill sets that actually turned out to be still relevant to my career over 10 years down the road, which is in VC, which is about growth, leadership, hard decisions, market expansion, all these other, and the same geographies actually. So taking a step back and I'm just saying like, you know, what are the lessons I take away from it? I think there's actually a lot of path dependency, which is that I think is very non-obvious is that I think you want to make some decisions about your life now, but the truth is the decisions that you make 10 years down the road are very dependent on what other decisions you make today. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the decisions that you make today means that you're boxed a certain career down the road. But it means that you just have to be hyper aware about what exactly you're taking away. So it's less about job role, which I think a lot of people are very concerned about. It's like marketing versus consulting versus things. But also I think a lot of non-obvious stuff that is much more obvious to me now is geography is actually a big part. Are you choosing to be at a frontier market, for example, like Indonesia or Philippines? Or are you doing this in Singapore or the US? So which market you're in? Who's the boss that you're going to have? Your mentor is so key about what kind of work attitudes you learn from, both the positive and the negative, what you like and dislike. Who's the tribe that you hang out with? Who's your cohort, right? What are they going to do with their, their lives? Because there's a lot of psychological studies that show like, hey, if your friend gets fat, you have a 30% chance of getting fat because obesity and obesogenic behaviors are socially contagious. And we see that, for example, in social media, radicalization in terms of violence against schools or religious. Social networks have a huge amount of sway. And obviously we think about it when there are 
negative behaviors. But the truth is, there's also positive behaviors that we get from our tribes that we work with. I think optimizing for who you're going to become is really key if I was to really lay out. And what I mean by that is if you know that one day you would like to be a CEO, I'm the same example, you would like to be a founder, then there are different paths to get there. You could be, for example, highly technical. You could be an engineer. You work at a bunch of startup, late stage startups. Then you work at early stage startups and then eventually become a co-founder. CTO, or it could be a technical founder who's a CEO. There's a path that is quite well-trodden and clear about the archetype, about what are the strengths and weaknesses of that approach and what you need to work on. Or you want to be CEO of a large multinational corporation. Then you look at their LinkedIn profiles today. A lot of them, for example, join a multinational corporation. They join consulting. Eventually, they probably did a master's, an MBA. A lot of them did that. And then they joined a company and then they stayed. If you look at most public company CEOs, most of them have been at a company for like 20 years. So all these public companies are all promoting from within. They're not necessarily promoting a CEO that comes from a different company. So if you want to be CEO, you have to work your way up through the key functions like corporate strategy, finance, whatever is the core revenue driver of the business. And so there's, I think, a lot of implicit paths to that role that are there. And there are multiple types, but you have to be aligned. And so I think a lot of folks are very much like, oh, I want to be a consultant. I want to be a marketer. Those are the job titles that you're going to take on in the next two years. But I think the question is like, who are you going to be? Who do you respect? Who do you not want to be? <laughs> who do you want to be? And take a look at their LinkedIn. Take a look at their profile, right? What did they do? What did they achieve? Who did they learn from? And I think that's how you work backwards and you create that path dependency becomes an asset rather than finding yourself boxed out. So you obviously touched on how long and why you chose to go to Bain Southern Asia. So that's like, I guess, the consulting plus the geographical angle to some extent. But at the same time, you're doing conjunct consulting, right? So you're starting your own nonprofit. What do you think about doing that full-time versus doing consulting? How do you weigh those two options? Well, the reality was that I had been thinking about conjunct consulting as a nonprofit at that point of time. I founded it because... I was coming back to Singapore and I wanted to volunteer at a social impact consulting firm or organization. It didn't exist, right? So JC and I, Kwok Tia Chuan, had that conversation and we said, you know, we were good friends back then. And then we talked about it and said, yeah, why don't we just do it together? And it was very natural. We made it happen. And at that point of time, it was a nonprofit. So we always envisioned it at the time to be volunteer run and so forth. But I think the decision was really, once I got Bain, I was like happy and kind of like had that. And I wanted to volunteer at Conjunct at that point of time. What happened, of course, is like when in a year was I kind of realized like, hey, this is not going to be sustainable unless we make it a social enterprise. We need to think very clearly about our money, revenue streams. We had to think very clearly about who was going to be the succession planning, who's the executive director, who's the talent, who's the pipeline of talent for folks who are going to be passionate about eventually coming back to the role. Because it's not an easy role to do as well. So I think creating that internal decision was like, okay, actually at some point it was like, okay, in order for this to keep going, I should probably leave Bain at some point and take this full-time role so that I can solidify everything, solidify the revenue, be full-time, be committed, but also actually honestly create a cultural precedent for somebody to be a leader who is a paid professional then. Of course, nobody at that point of time complained about me becoming a full-time employee because they knew that I was working so hard all the time as a founder. So I had that implicit organizational trust. So I wanted a transition to happen with me first so I could like carve out a path and eventually Samantha, who was a 
conjunct volunteer who got trained and eventually became my successor in the open bidding process, in our search process. When she took over, she had an easier time because I already had proven out this transition from a volunteer-run organization to a more professional organization. Frankly, at that time, it was more like my decision was work at Bain and on the side, create this nonprofit at that time called Conjunct Consulting. But then we did the work. I was like, look, this organization is going to die if I don't go full-time at some point to again carve out the social enterprise nature of Conjunct Consulting. And, you know, I think that question was worth asking and thinking about because there's a lot of students out there thinking about whether they should continue on with maybe it's a small business, e-commerce, marketing agencies. I'll start one right after graduation. There are also some people who are thinking of scaling up the nonprofits that they have built in school after graduation. So it's like, is after graduation the right time to go to their founder, build a company, or is it better to go and pick up skills somewhere else? Because I totally think about that. Yeah, I think when I was a student, I asked the same question. And obviously there was all these older folks who were like, hey, you should learn stuff. And that was very unpopular. I was like, no, I want to build this nonprofit. I mean, in retrospect, it was like, yeah, all the managers and all the mentors were like, Jeremy just got to learn and explore first. And then none of them were like, go build straight away. I was found it very unsatisfactory as an answer and advice. I think what I want to do is I want to give the same advice, but I want to give a little bit more nuance. So hopefully I you know, can understand the nuance behind it. I think life is long and assuming that you don't get hit by a bus or something bad happens to you. But I think actually for most folks, you actually have a pretty long career. So from your 20s all the way to your 70s, there's like 50 years of life that you can actually build a career. And the truth is on average, what people state have a job for four years. So there's like 10 different jobs that you're going to have across the time frame. So what I mean by that is the question then becomes, what's the sequence of the jobs that you want to do in that sense? What I mean by that is, you have a choice to explore or you have a chance to build. So they call it, in business school, they call it explore versus exploit. So what I mean by that is this. Your exploration mode means that you're searching, you're learning, you're not committing, you're very shallow, you're very breathless, you know, you're very divergent, you're brainstorming, you're okay to ask questions. So it's an exploration mode and it's using it to describe companies that are in the exploration phase. And it talks about companies and teams who are in the exploitation phase, which is, after this exploration, they discover something that is a secret, is a hidden advantage. There's something they really enjoy doing as a clear product market fit. So they choose to exploit it, right? They choose to build very aggressively and they're 100% laser focused and they're no longer in exploration mode. And of course, the tension, the yin and yang here a little bit is when you're exploring, there's always gonna be some people who are like, oh, we should just focus and blah, blah, blah. But the thing is when you explore, you want to really, really explore and explore the solution space very thoroughly. And then when you exploit, you want to exploit and you don't want to get distracted by a bunch of different things. And obviously a tricky part is that a lot of companies, teams of people end up being very muddled, right? They're exploring, but then they're actually trying to focus or they're busy trying to exploit something, but they don't carve out a business division to explore separately. And so they're neither here nor there. So the best practice in that scenario, for example, is that if you're exploiting something like a monopoly or you're like an oligopoly, you're exploiting it. You should create sub-teams where they're protected culturally to explore and venture build or invest. But you're kind of giving that and you can call it a spiky shape. You can call it a T-shape. But I think that's how you should be thinking about it from a company level. That, I think, is quite 
true also at the individual level, actually, is that you get to explore careers. And I think it's much harder to explore careers when you're 50 years old, but it's much easier to explore careers when you're 20 years old, right? It's more socially acceptable. You have more energy. You have less obligations in terms of family and salary and so, so forth. And also you're part of a tribe where everybody's all exploring as well, right? And so your 20s, I think, is really your time to explore because people expect you to take a sabbatical. People expect you to explore new geographies. People expect you to do those different things. And you don't get penalized for exploring as well. And so what I mean by that is then you want to create a very bounded exploration path, right? Which is like, okay, I think we met somebody that you introduced, right? And the person was like, okay, you know, I set up a marketing agency and it turns out I don't like doing marketing. But I do think about the future. I do think about what the world needs. And I think about Southeast Asia. And so I want to do something in tech, but I don't want to do marketing. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you should try sales because you said you like talking to people and building relationships. So yeah, why not sales? Adjacent to that might be lobbying and government affairs. Maybe adjacent to that is product management. So there's a bunch of different roles adjacent, but you know you don't like doing brand marketing. You don't want to run an agency. You want to do something in tech. There's actually a bounded space, right? You're not doing oil and gas. You're not doing logistics. Actually, the space is quite bounded. So explore, right? Maybe do two years as a sales role, as a business development representative, junior sales role. And then it turns out you don't like it, then transfer and do product management in tech, right? And startups are quite generous and open for generalists and flexibility. And you're in your 20, so this is a great time to do the exploration. What I'm trying to say here is you really get to explore. That being said, by turns out, maybe you already know a secret. Maybe you've been, and we talked, we had a previous episode where we had Evan Heng at Zenith Education. So he started a tuition agency <laughs> pretty much as a freshman. And then he's done well over those four years. And now he wants to keep going and make this a full education tech startup upon graduation. So if you already know something about yourself, you really like education, you know that you already have a secret that you want to exploit fully, you want to build, then yeah, you get a focus, right? So I think the tricky part for me is like, the truth is my side was I was in exploration mode in the sense that in freshman, I was doing all kinds of different clubs and societies. And then turns out I really like having a sense of mission, having a strong tribe that's very passionate about a larger cause and high performance. And that performance turned out to be problem solving and consulting. So that was a good group of people. And the truth is I've continued to build and exploit that inside of mine, right? Which is, I use that to join Bain. I use that to work and build conjunct consulting to build that community as well. And then I found that at Harvard and business school. And I found that in building a company of my own, right? As a founder in education tech, which also, again, had all these things, strong sense of mission, high performance, and kind of like clear vision direction. And then similar for VC, right? Now I get to hang out with founders who have that same sense of purpose and hunger and ambition and logical work that needs to be done. So I've continued to exploit that insight of mine personally in terms of how I think about my career and where I want to work at and what I want to do. But I also continue to explore. I did Taekwondo in secondary school. I did judo in JC. Army actually was pretty good as a sport in terms of fitness. And then I was cycling and a bit of hiking in university. And then I got tremendously unhealthy over the two companies I built because I didn't have the balance. And turns out now, you know, I'm in my 30s. But then at the second company, I was in Boston. My wife recommended, hey, I took out this class in improvisational comedy, for example. So I said, okay, you're trying it out. Yeah, I like Whose Line Is It Anyway as a show. I explored it. I went to this, I took a one-on-one course. And then 
turns out I really enjoy it. I'm getting better at it. There's a pathway for me to get good at it or excellent in over the long term. Um, there's a certain cadence that I like to do it at every week or every other week. Um, so it took me 10, 20 years to explore what a right hobby was in that sense. But now I'm happy to continue building. And so now I know I can do improv comedy in Singapore for the next 10, 20, 30 years, right? And that's a skill set that is helpful for public speaking, for conversations. The active listening component is very helpful for business and so, so forth. So these are all things that are adjacent to my job, but it took me 10 years to explore and then later exploit, right? So I think that that's a nuance I have in terms of the framework is that if you're a university student, do you actually know that you really, really want to do something? And if you know you really want to do something, then do it. But if it turns out that you don't know and you're still exploring, then give yourself permission to explore. Do a two-year bounder experiment in a job and industry and geography that you think you're most likely going to do well or enjoy and do it for two years. And then if you don't like it, change it. And if you like it, do more of it, right? Yeah, you know, I really like that explore versus exploit. And I don't want to, in fact, I was just having dinner with two juniors from school last night and then we we're having an executive conversation, which is what to do after graduation? How do I really know I like something? And it reminded me of what Steve Jobs said a lot of people, things only make sense in hindsight or the dots only connect when you look at them in hindsight. And the truth is, you know, when I look at my whole undergraduate career, I've done government internships, trust and safety, big tech, FMB, tech, nonprofit, the entire gamut. I think it's really only after going through the entire gamut of things that I have a clear idea of what I like and dislike. What are the types yeah. of people I enjoy working with versus types of people I don't enjoy working with, who are people that I would love to work with from my boss, my colleagues, et cetera. And I think a lot of undergraduates don't actually do that. As we were discussing, one interesting thing was that a lot of, I guess, undergraduates who have a certain internship or an outcome in the university, say consulting, investment banking, they want to get that year three internship there in a bank or consulting firm. And so they sort of like reverse engineer everything that needs to happen before that. So year one, I do an internship at a small consulting firm, year two, I do well. Internship at a larger med science consulting firm. And hopefully by year three, I get an internship from Bain or Oliver Wyman that then converts very nicely into a full time yeah. job after graduation. But it's like a very linear pathway. And it's also very constraining because you then remove the opportunity from yourself to explore adjacent fields or random spaces in your first and second year where you should really be exploring. And a lot of people actually also don't do the more upstream stuff, right? And figuring out whether they would really be happy in banking, consulting, which is level wise, you know, go to events, hear how consultants, bankers talk about their jobs, their lives. And then level two is have one-on-one -on -one deep dive conversations with them. Level three is maybe work, work with them on a side project and see there are people that you would enjoy working with, you know, both in terms of working style, or how they think about issues, problems. And, you know, then the level for some is really get an internship with a consulting firm. So there's a lot of things you could do beforehand before you actually commit three months of exploration time in college to a specific like industry or career, which I think a lot of people don't think about right now. Yeah. You know, I get it. For me, I had the privilege of joining a social impact consulting club that was very selective because they really liked me. And I always tell people about the luck I had was this is a very selective club and they did a case study for a case interview. And 
the case interview that was very, very hard that everybody couldn't pass was about, hey, you know, this nonprofit has received 100,000 doses of vaccine and they need to figure out how to distribute it across the city. And I was like, oh, I don't know how to do a case interview, but I can talk to you all day about vaccines because I want to be a vaccine researcher in JC, right? And so I aced the interview and I lucked into it. And so I got qualified. And of course, I think I disappointed them in semester two because I was like working on Vietnamese microfinance, which <laughs> I had no interest or exposure to prior, previously, but we did a good job. So I kind of had a little bit of that luck, right? But, you know, I was willing to explore because for me, I had previously heard about this club from somebody who was an alumnus who had just come back from UC Berkeley. And she just told me, hey, check out this club. If you really like volunteering with nonprofits and you like medical stuff, this is a good place to join. So I think that serendipity and luck component is really hard to do if you already know what you're going to do. And don't get me wrong, I think there's also good reasons to know why you're already going to do what you do. Some folks I know now in retrospect, I think back then I didn't understand, but you know they came from very poor backgrounds and so they want a very stable, high-paying job. And that makes sense. I mean, back then I'll be like, oh, you know, so corporate, so transactional. But then you're like, okay, now in retrospect, I'm older. I'm like, okay, I get it. It gave them the stability and the income to get to the point where they're like, okay, now I can start thinking about the rest of my life. And then that's when they start changing their career because now they feel like they got some stability underneath them. So what I'm trying to say is that if you have the ability to explore in your freshman year and sophomore year, really take the opportunity to explore. Do as many internships as you can. Do as many informational calls as you can. Go try stuff, different stuff. Be a butterfly and do different things. And I think a lot of people will kind of like, shame you because like, oh, you should be, shouldn't you already know you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or this or that? Because it's true. I mean, it's more clear glide path for status and rewards. But I think it goes back to global maxima, local maxima, you know, they say, right? It's like, you can work very hard to climb a local hill maxima. And then you realize that turns out you're climbing the wrong hill, right? <laughs> for yourself. So I think there's a tricky part is like exploration phase is basically saying like, okay, which hill do I really want to climb? And be there because when you find a hill that you really want to do, you can get good at it over a very long period of time. So, for example, I think you and I have talked about it is like, should people be VCs, right? And then I'm like, well, VC is a very apprenticeship structure. There's not a lot of training. So, there's a lot of difficult moments, I think, for young, fresh grads to enter the job. They're going to face a lot of problems because they don't get trained properly and therefore they can't do a lot of different other types of jobs. But that's okay. But if you explore it for two years, that's fine. And then you can do something else and that's okay. But the truth is, if you know you're going to do 40 years in the same geography, the same verticals, the truth is you're probably going to get at least above average to good to even great because you have that time horizon and that comfort level to keep building your network, your skills, your knowledge, expertise, your credibility, your reputation in the space, you can really do it over long term. But I've actually met folks who did, I don't know, six years of VC and then they're changing geography or verticals. And then it doesn't port, right? You know, the network doesn't port and the domain knowledge doesn't port, they're starting from scratch. And so in retrospect, for what it's worth, a more efficient way have been to do VC for two years, realize you don't ever want to become partner and then go do something else, which is totally fine, you know? So I'm just trying to say here is you don't want to end up spending a lot of time climbing three quarters up the hill or even the top of the hill. And they realize they're like, oh, I'm, I've climbed the wrong hill, right? And it happens a lot in life. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to think about it. Being very clear about the experiment that you're taking with your own career and not going too deep into it without having very high conviction in it. 
And I think all university graduates out there go out and speak to as many people as possible before they even make a three months commitment to something or a two-year commitment to something right after graduation. I think my last piece of advice is it's okay to feel uncertainty. In fact, it's great to feel uncertainty because when you feel uncertain, it means that you have a discomfort with your present reality and you have hopes and fears for the future. And it's an amazing feeling to have because I can tell you now that I'm older, <laughs> I have a lot of certainty and I don't feel uncertainty anymore. So it's nice to feel that anxiety. It's nice to feel that nervousness. It's okay to be at peace with uncertainty. So don't blame yourself for feeling uncertain. Don't penalize yourself for saying and tell people that you feel uncertain. That's okay. I mean, obviously it's not a popular emotion to share out loud, but it's okay. What I challenge you to do is to feel that uncertainty and then take action because you feel it to reduce and solidify the certainty, right? Do that bounded exploration pathing. Do that sequence of work. Do that butterfly testing. Do the experiments. Because when you do those things, then you're actually acknowledging your feeling uncertainty and you're also solving for it. Versus I think a lot of folks I've met, they feel uncertainty and they're locked. You know, like you said, right? They're locked to this path of becoming a consultant, a banker, and they feel the uncertainty. And I'm sitting with them and they're like, I really uncertain about this job but I'm working very hard to do this job. And I'm like, well, have you already done an internship? Or, you know, are you uncertain because you've done it? And then they're like, oh yeah, I did two internships and I'm secured a third internship and I feel uncertain about this job. And I'm like, whoa, like if you've done if you've effectively two and a half internships in a job and you feel uncertain about this job, that's probably a sign that you would not like this job. I am saying that you can take a job that you don't like because you want to feed your family. That's totally fine. But it was just interesting that, you know, when people get locked in, they don't, let themselves feel the uncertainty and they don't let the body tell them what the reality of their situation actually is, right? And then that's when it gets stuck. You're do, doing a job that you don't like and you feel uncertain and you force yourself not to feel uncertain but actually get uncertain and then that's how you end up lawyers who set up a cupcake shop, right? You know, there's a joke that they have, right? It's like all the lawyers who set up bakeries in their 40s because they did 10 years of laws and I'm like, whoa, it took you 10 years of law school and doing law to set up a bakery? Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could have discovered that maybe in year two. And then, yeah, you had to eat the bullet, right? I mean, don't get me wrong, it's super tough, right? Hey, imagine you tell your parents, you're like, hey, I'm dropping out of law school and I want to join, become a baker. I think you're going to get scolded for sure. But that's a reality, right? People have this conception of the law degree and blah, blah, blah. But the actual reality of studying law, the actual reality of practicing law, the actual types of law, commercial versus trial law, right? I'm just giving an example, right? Go test it as fast as you can. And if you can test it within two years and it turns out that you really don't like it, then let yourself be okay with it. Or maybe graduate with it so everybody's happy and then you go do a generous role in startups or something else. But what I'm trying to say here is there's a lot of people who say it's a midlife crisis and I'm very empathetic to my friends and folks who have midlife crisis, I would say a solid half of the folks who have midlife crisis actually had signals or feelings about this crisis all the way back at university or at the first job. It's more like they kept pushing it down and pushing it off. And this feeling eventually became a midlife crisis where they suddenly being asked, for example, at a job to commit to work towards being a principal or partner. You know, like there's that very clear inflection point that forces them to say, and then everybody looks at them and is like, wow, this crazy person changed countries, changed jobs. 
right? Change everything about their life, change families in their 30s or whatever. And then you're like, well, it's, it's not like the guy woke up in the morning or the lady woke up in the morning and was like, oh, I have a midlife crisis today. The midlife crisis was happening for a long time, but it wasn't allowed to be felt. And because of it, instead of being a set of bounded career experiments where you gradually work your way towards what you want, they end up being locked into that path they don't like. And then they have to do a rupture move where they jump entirely. They have to do an MBA. They have to reskill. They do something very different because the pain of continuing down that path is worse than the pain of changing, right? So what I'm trying to say is like, if you're listening to this podcast and in 10 years of midlife crisis, don't feel bad. It's okay. Lots of people <laughs> have midlife crisis. But if you can save yourself the pain of a midlife crisis by feeling and being in touch with your feelings and being in touch with the tribe of people you want to be with and being in touch with the lifestyle you want to build, and acknowledging the trade-offs of that passion or hobby, what that means in terms of financials and lifestyle, you're able to be bringing yourself to peace and accept those trade-offs, then you can be a happy life no matter what you are. So go out there and slowly build the life that you want to be happy. Yeah, I think that really wraps things up very nicely. I think people need to first understand what fundamentally makes them happy and to make people focus on what makes other people happy rather than what makes themselves happy. That's the first cardinal sin when you are thinking about what to do with your life. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.